Today's scripture comes from Genesis 1, 24 to 31. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. We're in a series on creation. And we're up to that point in uh, chapter one. Or finally, God says, um, let us make man in our image. It's verse 26. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and et cetera, et cetera. This, we're not even out of the first chapter of the Bible, and this is how the Bible tells us where human beings came from. That's the Bible's tell, uh, I'm telling of, this truth. Um, I, I feel a little strange today, to be honest with you. Today's going to be a little bit of an odd sermon. Because um, normally, that's the text. And you see me dig into the text and explicate that text. But I'm actually not going to talk too much about that text today. I'm just going to point to you. Because today we're going to talk about a gigantic elephant in the room in our culture. Today I'm going to talk about science. Okay. Now, um, a couple weeks ago, I, I read, I, I read a bit of a, uh, an extended quote from a report on creation from our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, and um, there was a portion that said something like this: "We recognize that a naturalistic worldview." That is, everything is nature. There's nothing above nature. There's no God, heaven, all that stuff. Naturalistic. World is everything. Nature only. We recognize that a naturalistic worldview and true Christian faith are impossible to reconcile and gladly take our stand with biblical supernaturalism. And that is the stance of our denomination. I absolutely agree with that. Our church absolutely agrees with that. We believe that that is the truth. But that is clearly not the way our culture thinks. Our culture thinks very much inside of naturalism. And normally, since you know, it is my job to teach you the, the Bible's teaching and, and to get into theology, um, 
I would probably normally start off by saying, why do not believe the naturalistic account of where human beings came from? We have a name for this in our culture that is neo-Darwinian evolution, right? And I think just about all of you are familiar with this. Neo-Darwinian evolution. And normally I'd give you the theology. I'm, I'm a pastor, I should give you the theology. But I, I thought if I start with the theology, you're gonna be sitting there going like, but what about the science, pastor? <laughs> especially if you're here and you don't consider yourself a believer in Jesus or you're not sure, right? So today, uh, let's start with the science. And then next week, we'll have a wonderful celebration of Thanksgiving. And the week after that, we'll get into the theology, why, um, why, the, why I believe the Bible's account um, is over uh, neo-Darwinian evolution, okay? Let's get into it. Part one. Distinguishing real science from the religion of scientism. Distinguishing real science from the religion of scientism. Part two, why I do not believe in naturalistic evolution. Okay, And I hope that after I give this presentation, you too will be convinced not to believe in it too. Right? And think, yes, there'll be a lot more space to have a lot more confidence and we could trust in the Bible, right? Part three, the foolishness of God over the wisdom of man. The foolishness of God over the wisdom of man. Let's get to part one, distinguishing real science from the religion of scientism. Um, I shared with you last week, and, um, and I want to just review this portion. There's a difference between science you know, the, the practice, which is a wonderful thing, which, by the way, came from Christians. I don't know if you know that in history. It came from Christians. And, and what is real science versus a secular religion in the name of science, okay? A secular religion in the name of science. So if you have a religion, guess what? It has to tell you and teach you certain important things about life. One of them things is... Where did you come from? So this is strange if secular religion has, uh, has to have a Genesis story. <laughs> it has to give you a Genesis myth. We are taught that in our schools. All your children, especially in public schools, and you're here, and it's, and it's in a lot of our scientific um, establishment. They do lots of great true science, but also is mixed in this secular religious worldview that tells you what is, I think, essentially a secular Genesis myth. And it all rolls through, it rolls through this thing called Neo-Darwinian evolution. Now, this first first point, I just want to make, I want to just make this one point before I go to part two, where will be the meat of today's message, which is, how do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference between real science and what the philosophers call scientism. That is a religious ideology in the name of science, okay? How do you tell that difference? And that issue is, it is verification and falsification. Verification and falsification, especially falsification. So, um, you know, you grow up in, in high school and you hear about science. It works something like this. There's a hypothesis. We think this is how it works. So you get, uh, you get a statement. This thing A 
causes B. And then you have this line over here. You, know, you guys have seen this little line. And then there's a cause. This thing is what happens. That you do this, and then you get this result. Right? And then that's the hypothesis. Or if it starts getting strong, it's called the theory. And then in the real practice of science, there are all kinds of experiments, observations, and data collected. And you know what we're, what we're seeking to do? This claim, A, causes B. Can you verify that? Does the data and the experiments come back? And it continually goes back to support that claim. Does it do that? Or does the experiments and the observations falsify that claim? Does it falsify that claim? Now, I'm not saying anything controversial, right? You know, uh, Any of you who practice science, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about your high school lab even, OK? Any of you who practice science, whether at the highest levels or even at the beginning levels, this is science. This is real science. You know, it's great. What we're talking about is something inside, in, inside of the, the nature known world, and we can observe its cause, and then we can falsify that claim. Now, what's the difference between that and religion? This is a really, really important point. Okay? A religious stance, a religious claim, can't be falsified. That's very, very important. It is built upon faith. It is built upon faith. And let me just say a little something about this. Everybody does this. You may not consider yourself a person of faith. You don't consider yourselves a conventionally religious person. But I want to argue with that. Everybody has a religious worldview. And there are things that you believe about the world and about what's true, and there are claims about that, and you can't, you know, you can't prove it, nor when somebody says that they believe it, you can't falsify it, because they believe it, it's built on faith. So whether millions of people believe it or just a few people believe it, it's still a faith position. You understand what I'm saying? So let's just use the, the, the um, in Christianity, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. It's a very weird doctrine. There's one true God. <laughs> Three persons in one essence, OK? Now, can you prove that? Can Christians prove that? We cannot prove it, OK, using some kind of like, you know, some kind of like science or something like this demonstrable way. But inside of our faith, we experience the fullness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe it to be utterly very, very real. But we know it's true inside of our faith, right? But let's talk about other things. And, and you can't like, falsify it. Somebody who's on the outside can't say, well, that's, fa that's just false. Right? I mean, let me prove it to you. Like, well, some people have tried, but actually it really doesn't really work because all the people inside of the faith, like, it, it makes sense inside of faith. But let's just pick a different religion. Hindus do not believe primarily that after you die, you go to heaven or hell. They believe in reincarnation. Cycle, this they call it samsara. And depending on how well you have obeyed and done well, karma will decide whether your next life is going to be good or bad. OK, that is a faith position. You cannot verify it nor falsify it. The fault, you can't falsify that. A person believes that. It's like, OK, that's, I, I don't know if you really are living your 10th life here or not. But that's a faith position. OK, you're hearing what I'm saying? Just one more. Secular people do it too. <laughs> Secular people do it too. Which is, take, if you don't practice justice, 
you're a bad person. <laughs> if you don't practice justice in the way we think, you're a bad person. You know what that is? That's a religious position. <laughs> That's a religious position. You can't falsify it according to some kind of science. Right? You have a religious worldview. They have a religious worldview. And honestly, they may utterly clash, and they do. Right? And so, but that's a religious worldview, but that's not of a traditional worldview. So you following me? But in science, real science, things can be falsified. Okay? All right. That, I hope that was interesting to you. Let's get to part two. Let's get into this. Why I do not believe in naturalistic evolution. The first point I want to make is let's make a clarification. There's this word evolution. It's used, it's thrown all around the place. And I want to make a very important distinction, which all the scientists make too, which is microevolution versus macroevolution. Okay? Microevolution versus microevolution. What's micro? Microevolution is inside of, of, an, of a given species, of a, given, a plant, an animal, you know, just, then there are different variations that happen by random, you know, by random variation and sometimes mutation. And at times, within the environment, the ones that do better, the, the species can begin to change, right? And this is essentially the insight which made Charles Darwin famous, microevolution. As far as I know, this is utterly uncontroversial. I don't know anybody who doesn't believe this, okay? This, you, this has been verified, 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 and you can't falsify it. This actually happens. The famous example from Charles Darwin is he went to this place called the Galapagos Islands off South America, and then he, you know, he saw these birds called finches. People call them Darwin's finches. And he saw that depending on the context, some of the beaks come out, get a little bigger, or it get a little smaller, and sometimes the smaller beak is advantageous. Sometimes the bigger beak is advantageous. And so he discovered, essentially, and argued for this change inside the species. And today, you know, people tend to call it microevolution. Nobody's debating this, OK? I don't know any, I don't know, Christian, non-Christian, anyone who, who disbelieves this. So that's the first point I want to make on that. But it's the latter one, macroevolution. That's where all the fighting is. So macroevolution is this. So there's a bird, and he has feathers. Over time, can the feathers become scales? <laughs> can the scales become fur? Can the fur become skin? Because it's a wholly, wholly different species. We're not talking about a seemingly relatively minor variation inside of one species. We're talking about whole, complete species change. So what has been argued in our culture in what I would call the science, scientism's myth of, uh, of neo-Darwinian evolution is they took something that Darwin discovered and saw within one species and then started making and extrapolated this claim, this is how we get everything. And ultimately, this is how we got human beings too. This is the part I want to argue this isn't true. And lots of people don't think it's true. And here's the part I want to argue today which is, it's not true according to science. <laughs> That's the part I want to show you. It is not true according to science, and that there's science <laughs> that falsifies this claim. That's the point I want to say to you. Why do not believe it? I don't believe it according to theology, yes. Right? And actually, 
in the, in the grand scheme of things, what the Bible tells me is more important than what I learned from science. Um, but I want to show you from science and help you break up some of the thoughts in our world that is really claims of scientism, okay? So there's so many different arguments. And in this, you know, in this message, what I'm going to do is I'm going to boil it down to two. <laughs> I'll give you two examples. I think they are slam dunk. I think the evidence is so powerful, I chose two that I think utterly falsify neo-Darwinian evolution. And perhaps you may agree with me. I hope you do. All right, so let's go to the first one. There's a book called Darwin's Black Box, written by a scholar named Michael Behe. And Michael Behe is a biochemistry professor at Lehigh University. I believe religiously, he is Catholic, OK? And in that book, he has an important concept. He calls it irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity. Now, Michael Behe is a molecular you know, biochemist. And he is making this argument. He actually looks at the, you know, the, 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 the beaks of the, of, of, of the finches, and he's like, he's like that, that, that can't prove anything about evolution. Because if Darwin is Darwinian, neo-Darwinian evolution is going to happen, you know where it has to happen? At the microbiological level, at the subcellular level, at the smallest subcellular level. That's where the change has to happen. So if you can't get structures that evolve you know, in, these, you know, in these ways, according to the claims of neo-Darwinian evolution, the, the whole theory is supposed to fall apart. That's his claim. And so um, here's what uh, actually, I mean, I, I thought I'd show you the video, but let's, I thought I'd just give you the argument. He, I don't know if you know this. You know, you know, we have a brother who has a, I was, I was a part of me. It's like, maybe I should just have him give this, uh, give this uh, demonstration. Um, but um, inside of your cell, okay, you got your cell, right? And then do you know that there's different portions inside your cell? It's not just one thing. It's tiny. The cell is tiny. But there are things even tinier inside of the cell. Huh. It's called organelles. And then inside the organelles, there are structures inside of that. And if you go in there, it looks like an incredible complex factory, like a city. And there's all these structures. There are what, uh, what the scholars have called uh, biological machinery. It's like machines. And this is what Michael Behe is an expert in. And he gives you this example. So let's go to the next slide there. He talks about irreducible complexity inside of a machine. So, when I first read his book, the example he used was a pump. And you look at that thing, you're like, it looks just like a pump. It acts just like a pump. It takes, you know, and it's like, and we know exactly how that works. So in, in a different video, he used mousetrap. Uh, let's just use mousetrap. I think it's just a little bit easier. It's visually, everybody understands. You know, this is the classic mousetrap. You guys all seen one of these? You may, hopefully, you've never needed this, OK? Or hopefully, you've never needed this. Uh, we, I have, we, we, we use this, OK? Inside of a in a mouse trap, it has to have certain pieces. Okay, it has to have a fundamental board, a foundation. Here, it's made out of wood. It has to have a little portion where you put the bait, like cheese. I, I, I hear peanut butter works really, really well. Okay, and then you have the spring. You got the clasp, and then you got that little, 
that little portion. I don't know what they call that part, right? And that's the thing that goes psh, like this, and then, psh, you know, the, the, the mouse dies, and, and then your wife is a lot happier, okay? And uh, so that's how it works. And you guys know how this works. There's this, the, the, this, the, the clasp, you know, that goes back, and then when the tension is released, it slaps forward. It's not a complex machine. At least it's not the most complicated. It's not like a computer or something like this. But it has to have those certain parts. And here's the claim of neo-Darwinian evolution. Each portion says that there's a variation. It happens utterly by random. Only by luck can a new uh, uh, some new structure happen inside the cell, and so it has to be very, very incremental. There you get part A, then you get part B, and then, part C, and then now you can get this new thing and this new structure. And that's how then ultimately over time you get new things inside the cell, you get new animals, you get all new different types of species. That is the claim in neo-Darwinian evolution. Michael Behe says, but if you actually look inside the cell, you have these little machines like this. And inside the machine, if you just take one of those parts away, one of those parts away, the whole thing is useless. <laughs> so there is a complexity. You cannot reduce that complexity to something even simpler than that. If you reduce it to something even simpler than that, the whole thing has to just show up all at once. That's what he's saying. And if their cell is going to work, this, this structure inside the cell is going to work, the whole machine has to show up all at once. Now, I don't know how you think about this. When I first heard this, I said, that's impossible. <laughs> by luck, by just random variation, that's impossible. That can't happen. And that's his argument, OK? Let's go to the second one. This one's a little bit more of a complex argument. This comes from a book called Denying Darwin right, by David Berlinski. Uh, who's David Berlinski? Um, he has a PhD in philosophy from Princeton, and he has a postdoctoral. He's a postdoctoral fellow. That means he like has like more expertise after he finishes his PhD. Okay, in this is wild. How do you have a, a PhD in philosophy and then you get postdoctoral work in math and in molecular biology at Columbia University? So if you ever listen to this guy, David Berlinski, he is. So intensely smart, it's absolutely, um, it like boggles the mind, quite frankly. Right? So this guy has highest level expertise in multiple fields. Okay? And he wrote this uh, very controversial essay called Denying Darwin, and then he named, he gathered together a bunch of essays, and then this, the book was titled Denying Darwin. And I read this essay many years ago, it came out in the 90s. And um, what I want to do is show you one, just one thing, he gives you a, a bunch. I'm going to show you one, okay? One argument he makes in this book, in this book, in this essay called Denying Darwin. And I'll start with this question Can meaningful information come about by random, random variation and mutation? By luck, it's random. This thing, this uh, changes, okay, this way, this side, this has, okay, well, you have this variation. All right, maybe the, the structure came out a little bit this way, this came out a little bit smaller this way. It's random, by whole, wholly by luck. And can we get meaningful information? I'll get to this in just a second. Through random, okay? So 
follow me here, please. I did my best to take what I think is an absolutely brilliant argument. Try to make it as accessible as possible. I think it's quite accessible, but let me do my best to try to help you, help you to make it accessible, okay? So let me give you this quote. This is David Berlinski. The eerie and unexpected presence of an alphabet in every living creature. You know what he's talking about? 1953, DNA is discovered. Watson and Crick, they get the Nobel Prize, and justifiably so. That was astounding, right? And now, you know, a lot of you grew up with this thing, but it's only, the, the, the discovery's only been not even 70 years. So what we have in every living Creature is something that he calls an alphabet. DNA, of course, acts as life's primordial text. That's what he calls it. It's a text. The code itself organized in nucleic triplets. That's how the code works inside the DNA. I know some of you are like, uh, i got to remember back to like 11th grade biology. <laughs> Those of you who ever like, uh, did, who did life science, you're like, this is just super easy for you, okay? Each triplet is matched to a particular chemical object, an amino acid, okay? An amino acid. There are 20 such acids in all. They correspond to letters in an alphabet. That's what he calls it. So there, you get the DNA. When you get a certain sequence, you get an amino acid. And those, there are 20 possible amino acids and he says those are like the letters in an alphabet. There's 20. All right, this alphabet has 20. Okay? It goes on. The linear order of the nucleic acid induces a corresponding order in the amino acids. You guys see it? Nucleic acid, and then boom, you get the amino acid. Like the nucleic acids, proteins are alphabetic objects. Proteins are like alphabet. That's, what, that's the comparison he makes. On average, proteins are roughly 250 amino acid residues in length. So a given protein may be imagined as a long biochemical word, one of many. You hear what he's saying? So you get, you have, a, you have a, the amino acids. That's like a letter in the alphabet. You got to align the amino acids a certain, to a certain exact right way. Typically, there's about 250. So like, it's, it's a really long, each letter is long. It's like, imagine a 250-letter word. Now you got a protein, OK? So let's just back up. He says, now the aspects of an analogy are now in place. He goes on. So let me see if I can help you. If this is easy for you and you're totally following, sorry. But let me just make it this, just so you can't, you can't miss it. You guys all know how this works. There are letters in an alphabet. In English, we have 26. And then they have to be in the exact right order. And then you have a word. Otherwise, it's just gibberish, right? You have a word. And then the words have to be in the exact right order. <laughs> and then we get a sentence. This is how our language and our texts work, right? So he's telling you there's something in the biology that works just like that. So. Here's how it works. Next. So it goes, just give you a review. It starts with the DNA, which is like the text itself. <laughs> and it tells you nucleic acids. That's how, you know, the nucleic acids are how like, the spelling works, so to speak. 
Then you get to the letters. He calls them amino acids. And the amino acids, you line them up, you get proteins. And then proteins in the correct order. That's the fundamental building blocks of life. Okay? It's not life, by the way. You just get to proteins, strips. You still don't have life. But in the correct order, now you have the fundamental building blocks of life. Okay? You following? Everybody following here? It's like, I know pretty, it's nerdy. Pastor, you're pretty nerdy here. <laughs> it's like we're in like college again, okay? Or like AP biology or something, okay? All right. Now he, he, he goes to um, a question. The question he asks is this. What if we had 1,000 monkeys randomly pecking on 1,000 keyboards? And you know where he gets this? Let's do a thought experiment. He gets it from a famous book, The Blind Watchmaker by Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is an atheist. I think he's a professor at Oxford. He's one of the world's most famous Darwinists. Right? And so he actually he takes <laughs> the example from a Darwinist book, and he goes, well, let's play this out. So you get one monkey with one monkey, and you got one finger. So he just likes like that to the most basic level. You got a monkey. He got a finger. And then he got a tap on the keyboard. So there's 26 letters. We, we know there's like numbers and other symbols, but let's just keep this simple, OK? Keep it to the alphabet. 26. It's random. The monkey has no idea where you're supposed to go. It's random, right? That's the way it has to be in neo-Darwinian naturalistic evolution. It's random. So let's just say we want to have a word. It's a very, very easy word. Let's just say the word is high. <laughs> H-I. So the monkey goes, plunk, right? And it's Z. Oh, it's like a nothing. nothing. And then it ran with plunk, it's Q. Oh, nothing. Oh, clunk, B. And then clunk, H. Oh, oh, oh OK, 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 we got H. By the way, he has no idea anything important is happening. <laughs> so what is the chances? He's going to peck H. You guys know the math. It's not that hard. Come on, you're all smart. One out of 26. That's the odds, OK? All right. What are the odds he's going to next one? He's got to be H, and then it's got to be I. That's got to be the right order, OK? What are the odds of striking two correct letters in order? What are the odds? The odds are 676. It's 26 times 26. So to get that two-letter word, clunk, clunk, it's not that easy, OK? All right, let's raise the bar. So he gives you, he gives you this quote. It's in Richard Dawkins' book. It's actually a Shakespeare quote. What would it take to get to this phrase? Methinks it is like a weasel. <laughs> Methinks it is like a weasel. There's six words containing 28 English letters. They have to be in exact order, right? All right, here we go. The odds are one out of brrr, drum roll, drum roll, drum roll, are 10,000 million, 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 million possibilities. And then, you know what he says next? 
This is a very large number. <laughs> Such are the fatal facts. We're not talking about a protein, which is far lengthier. One protein needs 250 letters. I mean, one amino acid. No, am I getting that right? No, one protein needs 250 letters. If an amino acid is one letter, and the average protein, we're just talking one protein, 250, you got to throw a lot more millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of it just to get that one protein. Huh. A bunch of other top scholars read this essay, and they dogged him. All right, you got all these like those originally published in Commentary Magazine. You got they got a flood of letters from a bunch of smart people around the world, and they said, "Berlinski, are you nuts?" And they threw their arguments at him. And then you know what Berlinski did? He answered every single letter. It's in that book. I mean, he didn't go through it long. But one of them was about this exact, issue, this exact example I'm giving you now. Here's what he says, OK? The interpretation of molecular biological facts in formal terms is hardly a matter of analogy. Because he said, you're just making up an analogy, man. You know, text on a page is not like, come on, it's not DNA. <laughs> DNA and amino acids and protein make, it's not, he's like, and his points are like, uh. It is molecular biologists themselves who have found unavoidable the language of codes. Of codes and codons, information, this is how I started. How do you get meaningful information? Algorithms, organization, complexity, entropy, and the like. And here's a sentence that really did it for me. DNA is not like a code. It is a code. <laughs> it is a code. In my 20s, I, I had a lot of questions about this. And I, I said, you know, I'd be like, oh, I don't believe in this. Maybe, 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 maybe. I don't believe it. Maybe, 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 maybe. After I read Berlinski, I said, it's over. <laughs> That theory has been falsified. <laughs> okay. I hope you will agree with me. I hope this will help you. Okay. Now let's go to part three. Pastor, I didn't come here to get a big science lesson. <laughs> Isn't this a place where we do the gospel? So I thought about this message and how can we proclaim the gospel in this time when we're always hearing the myth of naturalistic religion, right? In the guise of neo-Darwinian evolution. And I want to um, bring this point up to you. Do you know what science is? Do you know what science is? In all history, science is a wisdom tradition. That's what it is. It's a way to gain a new kind of knowledge, a new kind of insight into the world, and that throughout the history, <laughs> in all kinds of cultures, they call that wisdom. And there are different wisdom traditions. You know what science is? It is a tremendously important modern, science, uh, modern wisdom tradition. It is probably perhaps the most important wisdom tradition of the last three to 400 years. Right? It's a wisdom tradition. And on the whole, as long as we're doing real science, I love it. <laughs> and Christians should never, ever, ever be afraid of real science. 
because God made the world. And, it's like, and then he said, invite, invite us, go discover the goodness, my goodness. And this was science four, okay? But I want to take you to a place in the Bible that I think is tremendously relevant to this issue of a wisdom tradition. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 to 21. And it goes like this. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? If Paul was writing in the 21st century, he might say, where is the Oxford PhD and its important book? <laughs> he might say it that way. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It's a wild claim. We have our own wisdom. According to the Bible, you can't know God that way. <laughs> it pleased God through the folly of what we believe, of what we preach, to save those who believe. Let me say it a little differently. It pleased God through the stupidity of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. This is a Greek city. <laughs> you know people come here? People don't come to Silicon Valley to go to church. <laughs> they don't generally look for God. Oh, they want wisdom. This is a science, very science thick, wisdom tradition city. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, to the nations. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You know what we need? A wisdom of God. <laughs> what is that wisdom? It's Jesus Christ. And the section closes this way. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Yeah. Um, this is a Bible-believing church. It's a gospel-proclaiming church. Do you know that every week we proclaim this thing that the world thinks is really stupid? <laughs> we proclaim the foolishness of God. That's what we're here to do. And the foolishness of God, if you are here with us today, or maybe you're joining us on our live stream, and you're like, oh, the foolishness of God. <laughs> All this stuff we're talking about, this Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 that just seems really, really dumb. Because don't we? We have wisdom. Huh? And what I want to ask you, if you're a person that hasn't ever really yet your heart received the foolishness of God through Jesus Christ, how is it working out for you to have only the wisdom of man, your wisdom? There's a story in the Bible. There's Adam and Eve. And there's a fruit. It's forbidden. That's what God says. Don't touch this. And there was a lying, lying voice. It says, if you eat this, you will be like God. 
you'll be like God. You know what I think? Science, though it is very, very good, we treat it like that. <laughs> we treat it like that. If we get science, if we get that wisdom, we'll be like God. <laughs> we won't need God. It is the, one of the most powerful ways of our time and of our city and of our culture. That is the wisdom basis that people just feel like they can just, just dismiss the Bible, Jesus, church, Christianity, the whole kit and caboodle. We can just dismiss that. Why? We already have a better wisdom. But I want to ask you this question. Inside of this, is it really true that if you get this wisdom, you don't need God? <laughs> In our world today, people think if you have science, we can make up our own identity. We can you know, decide who we are. We can even decide what gender we are. Because <laughs> we could use our powers from science and we can make ourselves. You know what that is? I will be creator, not God. Hmm. Oh, we can fulfill ourselves. We can make everything good and right. We can save our society. We can save our souls. You know what that is? That is, we will be our saviors and not God. And nobody can tell me what to do. I own myself. I have enough wisdom. I have everything that I need. I have the wisdom that I need. You know what that is? I am my own Lord. And I want to ask you some today, if you're listening to this message, how's that working out for you? Is that working out well for you? I see a lot of young people today, and they believe in the religious mythology of neo-Darwinian evolution. And then they go out into the world, and they're like, God, church, okay, whatever. And now, then they find out it's all on you. It's all on you. You have to be wise. You have to make yourself. You have to get a great job. You have to be smart. So study more, and then study after work, and then do more, and then do more, because you've got to get smarter, smarter, smarter. It's your wisdom. And there's this other thing. It's all just rife throughout our whole culture. There's an assumption. We don't need a higher word, a greater word. And you know what that is? It's pride. <laughs> it's pride. The appeal of the devil was pride. You don't need God. You're big enough. You're great enough. You can replace him. Right? But God looked at us really broken people filled with a wisdom which could be good, but then poisoned by our sin, the sin of pride. And he who is creator, God spoke, the word who is the eternal word who was always with him, who is him. And the word came into the flesh, and in his life is light. And he is Jesus. Jesus became the wisdom we need. <laughs> and he became the wisdom we need by being ever so foolish. He did not come here and say, I'll strike you down, I'm smarter. <laughs> Though, of course, he is. It's, it's actually almost insulting to call him intelligent. He is omniscient. Instead, he said, I'll be a fool for you. I'll be vulnerable to you. 
I'll be weak for you. And when you nail me up, I will bleed. But when I bleed, it will wash away all of your wisdom, which is really your folly. And when you receive my folly, you'll be washed of your sins and most of all, pride. Let me just close this message very personally. The reason I, as a pastor, I can give you this kind of nerdy <laughs> sermon is because I love knowledge, right? And one of the things I've learned over my life, the Bible warns knowledge puffs up. In my heart, I've found out that very often I am puffed up. Much filthy pride. But Jesus came. Yes, he washed away all my sins. But the one for which I'm ever so grateful is that blood washes away my pride. That blood is his humility. It is his weakness. It is his foolishness. It is greater than our wisdom. And I pray that you receive his foolishness and receive him. Let's pray. A terrible and stiff-necked, tremendous, prideful people are we. We are like moles that live in the dark. As Pastor Young said, we call darkness light. <laughs> we call light darkness. But thank you, Lord, to fools such as us, you displayed your foolishness to reach us, to disarm us of our pride so that we receive the wisdom of God, you, Lord Jesus. You were creator. You could have just judged us. We are utterly so insulting to you. And yet, you became recreator, redeemer, that you would display your foolishness and through your blood would pour out your humility to wash us. How could you, could this, that seems so much more fantastic to me than anything that could possibly be claimed in the world and yet it is true. It's the gospel. And we thank you that that is true. If there's anybody here today that has not received that truth that has not received you, Lord Jesus. We pray by your spirit to gently wash over them and let them know their pride can be washed away. They can be loved and accepted and known by you forever and know your wisdom. If there's any of us who already believe in you, Lord Jesus, and we, we're not always prideful when it comes to science, but we can be prideful of like how we handle our money or how we do our parenting or what we think we need in life, how we're going to do our career, we could become very, very prideful and think our wisdom is all we need. Would you wash away this pride? Give us your foolishness and humility so we may know your wisdom, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray.